Hello everyone and welcome to Motos and Friends, a weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Electric mobility is everywhere nowadays, whether it's a car, a truck, an assisted bicycle, a scooter, or heck, any number of new innovations, the electric revolution is certainly here. In this week's first segment, Nick DeSena took a ride on Zero's recently announced new adventure bike, the Zero DSR-X. There's been a lot of hype about this new arrival on the ADV scene, and of course the questions are many. Nick talks to me about whether Zero actually has a credible alternative engine ADV bike, or if the machine is just simply an empty promise. In our second segment, I chat with Al and Bridget from Throw Your Leg Over. They took time out to record this episode from somewhere in the middle of Romania, of all places. Anyway, these interesting Aussies have travelled and painstakingly documented the thousands of miles they've covered riding the best roads and sites through Australia, Tasmania, Europe, Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, among other places. Their guided tour books and videos are all available online as a tremendous resource for all of you would-be travellers. A membership to throw your leg over also helps fund their future travels, and who knows where those might lead them. Al and Bridget are truly committed to their passion for travel, and that really comes across. Their fun and zeal for life on two wheels is great to hear. We hope you enjoy this episode. the first electric ADV motorcycle. So Zero has broken new ground. They've pulled the Band-Aid off and officially joined the ADV segment. Okay, what's the, uh, what's the name of this one? Uh, so the official name of this is the 2023 Zero DSR-X. Uh, and if you wanna get really technical about it, DSR slash X. X as in cross-country or something like that, presumably. Sure. Yeah. Why not? <laughs> the DSR name is something that we've seen from Zero uh, before. There actually is a Zero DSR. Um, and they, they position that motorcycle as their dual sport offering. So I would assume that DSR stands for dual sport road. Um, but in this case, the X denotes, uh, you know, an, an ADV affiliation. But, uh, you know, that's where we're at uh, at the moment. Okay, sounds good. So the, the big question is, is what did you think of it? Well, you know, there's, there's actually a lot to talk about. Um, you know, I think we need to sort of break down the new back the, the new battery technology and its strengths and limitations as well as the motorcycle itself um, and and how all those things tie together so kind of three different topics and while they're related they are sort of separate topics so what do you want to jump on first well i think let's get the easy bit out of the way and talk about the motorcycle itself um, you know, about the, the sort of the chassis and the brakes and, and how it handles. I, I personally have ridden lots and lots of electric bikes, and I've always found them pretty, pretty good to ride, actually. 
Yeah, you know, Zero's issue, if we really boil it down, and, and this applies to Livewire and Energica as well, which are the main sort of protagonists in the, the electric motorcycle segment, it really doesn't have to do with the motorcycle itself. And in this case, you know, the, the DSRX is another huge step forward from the brand. And if we think back even to a few years ago, when we were riding things like the Zero FXS, which is their supermoto platform. Um, I remember riding that when it first came out and, you know, not to just sort of poke fun and, and you know, make some hyperbolic jokes, but it, it wasn't as refined as the modern uh, Zero lineups are. You know, you could really, you know, poke some fun and, and say that it's sort of, a, you know, an overgrown erector set, um, come to life and, and shaped in a, in a motorcycle platform. And as fun as that thing was, you know, it, it just didn't really look the part. And now it, it very much does. And there's, there's been improvements along the way. So, you know, Zero is quite a young company. And every time they put out a new motorcycle, you see these huge leaps, for, leaps forward in, in refinements and just fit and function and everything else. And it, and it's not like when we talk about other manufacturers where with every iteration of motorcycle, it's just kind of things are a little bit better because there's an established pattern that we're working from. In this case, Zero is branching out in different directions and, and really learning and expanding. And now I would say with the, the introduction of the Zero SRF and SRS, so the fully fared motorcycles, that's when we really saw them hit their stride. And everything that was learned from the SRS and SRF bikes sort of applied here. Now, to be clear, the DSRX is its own motorcycle. It may have a lot of components that are derived from the SRF and SRS, but it is a wholly new engineered platform. So the steel trellis frame, and suspension, they all have their own geometry, um, has a much longer wheelbase. Geometry is a little more relaxed in, in comparison to a street bike that the SRS and SRF bikes are. And that's really to help it have stability and stable footing while it's on or off-road. So to that end, you know, it has pretty run-in-the-mill ADV geometry and wheelbase and things like that, you know. Pretty, pretty par for the course. It also has longer travel suspension. Uh, you know, we have some fully adjustable Showa kit on there and you're running something like, like 7.5 inches of travel at each end. And, you know, that's, that's pretty, pretty respectable for something that is expected to go off road. Um, so, you know, that's, that's all, you know, fine and dandy as well. And sort of the last piece of the puzzle that really cements its place in the ADV segment would be the wheel sizes. Uh, to that end, you know, it's running a 19-inch front and 17-inch rear. So that 19-inch front wheel is just going to help you clear obstacles. It's going to allow you to run uh, more ADV-oriented tire sizes things like that. Obviously 17 inch wheels are much better on the road, but a larger diameter wheel will help you in off-road situations. And this, this motorcycle does come stock with cast aluminum wheels. 
and you know they do have a wire spoke option for hardcore adv guys and gals but that is an additional price you're looking at basically two thousand four hundred fifty dollars for a set of their wire spoke wheels is there a 21 inch uh front wheel option 19 is a nod to off-road but it's not serious though is it correct and that that's a really important question so no, 21s are not available. And, and that really, really sort of puts the bike in a, in a certain ADV positioning. Like you mentioned, uh, running 2118 uh, or 21 inch front, basically 21 inch front really, really drives the point home that this thing is going to be off-road ready. And that's what we see on a lot of the more quote unquote hardcore ADV offerings in the middleweight segment. So that's your KTM 890 Adventure R's, Yamaha Tenere's, Aprilia Touareg 660, Ducati Desert X, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then if you look at a lot of what comes out of the KTM camp, you know, your, your 1290 Super Adventure R's, bikes like that, that are really pushing the off-road narrative. They all have 21-inch fronts. This bike does not have that. And to me, they've built a very competent ADV touring motorcycle. So right off the bat, it's not a hardcore ADV bike, uh, just in form and function. And it's not an ADV styled uh, touring bike, say something like the, you know, S1000 XR or Multistrada V2, or, you know, any number of motorcycles that just sort of take the ADV platform and, really it's still a road bike in this case you actually can go off-road so there's that okay so uh so that sounds like the like the zero is a real motorcycle and this is a very real credible motorcycle it just happens to be electric powered so i'm very curious how the the whole battery side of things work i i'm sure that as with all electric motorcycles the the software engineering on there is is great so you've got good throttle response and and it works extremely well but really the 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 big chink in the armor of electric as we all know is range and motorcycles don't have the capability of a of a nice shiny new tesla where you can carry huge batteries and and give yourself a three four five hundred mile range so how is zero addressing this and have they reached any level of credibility? Uh, the short answer is yes and no, but it's all subjective, right? For sure. You know, they, they did introduce, again, for the ADV uh, segment, they introduced their biggest battery yet. So a 17.3 kilowatt battery that according to zero is good for 180 city miles, 85 highway miles sustained at 70 miles per hour and a combined mileage of 115. Um, so that's combined at city and highway, obviously. Now you can spring for an additional optional power tank, their verbiage, for $2,895, which bumps the maximum battery capacity to 20.9 kilowatt hours. And that is also said to bump range up 20% across the board. So if you take that 180, 85, and 115 number, you add 20% to that, there you go. In that context, it actually does start 
seeming a little bit more viable, a little bit more appealing because the 115 mile range and combined mileage, that's probably what everyone's going to be using for the most part. You know, that's, that's not terrible, but it's sort of sport bike figures, if we're being honest. You know, there, there are some downsides with that power tank where it adds weight up top because it occupies the space of the handy dandy frunk, um, which is just sort of this open space where the fuel tank would be if it were an internal combustion engine powered motorcycle. Um, so it adds some weight up top. It does cost quite a bit. Um, and you're gaining, you know, 20 percentage battery capacity. But the other part of this conversation is charging time. Now, the bike comes with an onboard 6.6 kWh charger. So if you plug into a standard socket with a standard charger, that'll take you 10 hours to juice up from zero to 95%. If you use a level two charger, which is what most of the American EV infrastructure is based off of. So if you go to any public charging station, a lot of the times you're gonna be dealing with level two. That takes two hours. And you can also double the charging times by buying an accessory rapid charging module for $2,300. And that'll shorten your time to an hour as long as you're using a level two charger. Okay, so that is, you know, pretty feasible, honestly. You know, if you're riding somewhere, you stop, you know, after 100 or so miles, whatever, you take an hour break. You and I both know that motorcyclists will jabber jaw on the side of the road and kind of refuel on their own while also recharging the motorcycle. So an hour wait time for that sort of thing, that's, that's really not too bad. In the other cases, we're still sort of fighting that, that time distance and patience formula, right? Um, but things are feasible. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not bad. Um, but, you know, within those things, are, are, there's, some, there's some other issues to unpack as well. You know, we need to talk about how battery life uh, is impacted. And my experiences during our 55 mile plus testing route in Park City, Utah. So bear in mind, we left the, the parking lot with a full charge. I think my bike actually read 99% battery charge. So one takeoff from being topped up. Right. And the thing to remember with, you know, EVs or internal combustion engine motorcycles is that mileage is incredibly subjective. It's going to depend on your route, whether you're ascending or descending a very windy route. Um, it depends on the weight. So if you're adding luggage, if the rider is heavier, um, it depends on wind resistance. It also depends on the actual riding style of the individual. So our route was a pretty, pretty short, I would say 55 mile plus route. Um, we did a little bit of highway riding, went up a, a nice winding mountain pass, and then also hit a, a little groomed fire road for a, you know, a, a decent amount of time. Now, after that route was completed, I had spent 60% of my battery life. That's a pretty considerable amount, but you have to keep in mind what I was doing that may have been different from some of my colleagues. Now, what more well-behaved colleagues will categorize them as 
didn't suck up nearly the same amount of juice that some of my more enthusiastic colleagues did. Uh, <laughs> we did repeated photo passes from a dead stop. So your hard acceleration from zero miles per hour, that's going to use fuel or, or battery juice, um, no matter how you look at it. Without a doubt. You know, that spirited mountain rip, that's going to use battery life as well. Um, also, you have to kind of think about weight differences between myself and colleagues. Uh, some guy, guy or gals are taller or lighter. That's going to impact it. And then also uh, how aggressive you are when you're riding off-road. If you're spinning up the rear, if you're you know, maintaining a higher average speed than most, um, that's what contributed to me using a fairly high battery uh, percentage as opposed to other colleagues who, who really didn't put anywhere near the same dent uh, that myself and a couple other people did. Not to mention the terrain. I mean, if you're, you know, adventure riding on up in, you know, mountainous, rocky type of stuff, you're going to use a lot more battery than if you're, you know, blazing over a flat desert. Yes. Yeah. And, and terrain is going to be a factor as well. I mean, you know, outside of just elevation changes and climbing hills and, and things like that. And when I say climbing hills, I do mean paved and unpaved, uh, because if you're climbing up, you know, any, any sort of hill that's going to stress the the motor to a higher degree than just going on flat ground as you notice but there's also different off-road terrains that are really going to suck up battery life and you know sand mud things with low grip ratios where you're going to induce a lot of wheel spin that really takes it out of man and machine right there and i and i i would say that statement for uh evs and internal combustion engine motorcycles you're just creating way more wheel spin constantly and it's just a huge workout. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Again, it's all very, very subjective. Um, you know, battery life is a tough thing to sort of describe accurately because, you know, claimed mileage may not result in what the end user experiences. And that's going to ba be based exclusively on their riding behavior. Now, uh, Zero does make another bold claim where off-road riding times and distances can extend all the way up to about 200 miles. And they say that's because of lower average speeds. Now, they also were keen to point out that uh, that 200 mile marker took a pretty considerable amount of time. If I'm remembering correctly, it's something like, like 13 hours to complete 200 miles. So it means their average speed was something like, like 15 miles an hour overall. So it does prove that it can go the distance when you're really nursing that battery. That said, I feel that there's a, a sort of direct relationship or direct correlation between the degrees of a throttle turned and the amount of fun that you're able to have on a motorcycle. So if we're rationing out a motorcycle's performance instead of enjoying it to me that kind of seems a little bit arduous now that's not a knock at zero or livewire or energica that's just an observation that look battery technology as it stands cannot support the same kind of distance that an internal combustion engine can because of uh, battery consumption issues 
and infrastructure. There are more gas stations and they are more widely available than EV charging stations at this time. That's not to say that it's that that things aren't changing. And we are definitely going in that direction, you know, as a whole, because as we know, legislation left, right, and center across the globe is adopting EV and setting target dates to uh, fully sun sundown or uh, eclipse uh, internal combustion motorcycles. But the reality is we're not there yet. We're well on our way. Sure. But we're not there yet. And Zero is trying to work work uh, against, you know, the narrative and prove that, you know, EV, ADV riding is a viable thing. So they've partnered with backcountry discovery routes. ADV riders are going to be really familiar with, uh, you know, BDR maps as they're known. And if you go to the uh, BDR routes, basically it's this huge database of off-road trail riding uh, throughout the United States. And they've also partnered with BDR mainly to highlight the various EV charging stations that are near these BDR routes. So just taking a glossary look at the outlined maps and things like that, there are plenty of trail systems within the United States that have EV charging stations near them. So is an EV ADV motorcycle viable? Yeah, it totally is with the caveat that you need to understand that you're going to be spending a little bit more time charging when you're going to and fro these areas. You're going to have to ride out to the area, you know, recharge at an EV charging station, do your trail route, whatever it may be, then recharge again and come home. So yeah, if you have the time to kill and things like that, you're golden, but it's all going to come down to what you expect as a consumer, your riding style, and what you hope to achieve as an ADV rider. Um, and that, that's really, really where the buck stops on that front. But we do need to get back to the, the bike uh, because we do need to cover the electric motor and things like that. Um, sure, okay. But you know, that, that is a good, a good caveat to sort of segue into the, the performance, we'll say, of the, of the, the ADV bike. I'm interested to hear about the motor because obviously the motor does play a, a factor in range. Have they done anything new with the motor or is there any new technology in there? Yes. So the, the highlights of the, the updated motor it is, it is their, their ZF7510 motor that we've seen in, in a couple other models before, but it is updated and now it bears the 70, or ZF7510X designation. Now, engineers informed us that there are a handful of changes to their electric motor, but the biggest one is that it's gained an additional copper winding. So it's gone from four turns to five turns. Cool. Now, it also pumps out a respectable 100 horsepower at 3650 RPM, but here's where things get a little eye-widening for most motorcyclists. It produces a claimed 166 foot-pounds of torque. Now, that's, that's enough torque to basically elicit nervous laughter from anyone that, that reads, hears, or sees that stamped on the side of a, a, you know, an electric motor case. It's, it's, it's a silly number, <laughs> like just absolutely absurd for a motorcycle you know, in, in terms of torque. Right. But again, let's go back to that, that thing that I mentioned before, where Zero has done 
a great job of really improving on each iteration. Yeah. And in that sense, you know, it does push you forward with sort of a, what I'll say, a chuckle inducing amount of authority where it is very strong off the bottom because electric motors can make their torque much sooner than internal combustion engine. They make 100% of torque in the first revolution. So the software controller is all about controlling that torque and making it usable. Correct. So an electric motor can produce its torque almost immediately, but it's about metering that torque and creating something that's rideable. Because imagine if you had 166 foot-pounds of torque on the first blip of throttle. You'd probably just break traction constantly and or do backflips. I'm not sure which would come first, but <laughs> really it would just be ugly. It'd be impossible to ride. You know, it can be extremely mild mannered. It can just take on this quite subdued commuter role, or you can get pretty wild eyed with it and just launch off apexes. And to me, that's where this thing really becomes fun. But here's the important part. The electric motor is the definition of linear power delivery. Right. We always talk about that with motorcycles. That's what makes them manageable is you have power bands that build. They don't just spike like old two-stroke motors or older inline four motors might, might do where a lot of their power lives in a certain RPM range. And he, in this case, you just have power and you have it everywhere. There's no considerations for elevation. So if you go and climb to Pike's Peak, for example, it's going to make the same horsepower and torque at the bottom of Pike's Peak as it would at the top because it's electric. It does not have to deal with internal combustion. It is not affected by external atmospheric conditions. For sure. It just exists. Yeah. And that's a huge advantage right there. Yeah. Do they have different riding modes? There are. You have five standard riding modes. And again, oh, wow. you can jump into the app and customize everything and do whatever you want. So there's a lot of customization there. Sure. So there's rain, eco, standard, sport, and canyon. Now, of those five modes, four of them are self-explanatory. Right. You can kind of figure out what rain, eco, standard, and sport do. Canyon is the one that has a question mark next to it. Right. And really what canyon is, is for canyon riding. It's what we talk about constantly in reviews and everything else, where <laughs> okay. canyon has all of the athleticism at the right wrist um, of sport, but what it offers is about 80% regenerative braking, which means it has a similar feel to what you'd experience with engine braking. So as you roll off the throttle, you can feel some resistance through the powertrain. And you also recover a modicum of uh, energy in the process. Um, and then there's an off-road setting that, that's more of a blanket setting. So no matter what riding mode you're in, you can flip ABS and traction control into an off-road mode. So that essentially bumps down the TC limits and allows you to squiggle around in the dirt with a lot more freedom. And on the ABS side, it kills ABS in the rear and goes into sort of a dummy mode with ABS where it removes cornering uh, ABS and lean, lean angle detection traction control and really just dumbs things down for the off-road environment. In that case, you know, ABS works well in both environments, whether you're using the cornering ABS with the IMU engaged on the road 
or the off-road setting. And TC is where things kind of get interesting, right? Because if you think about how TC works on an internal combustion engine, the motorcycle detects slip. It then has to go and adjust fueling, uh, timing, things like that, and allow the, the engine to either slightly power down or maintain power. And this all takes time. You know, it's milliseconds, but it takes time. So you have to tell the engine to do those things and then observe the reaction to the rear wheel again and again and again and again, you know, thousands of times, you know, over the course of seconds. Electric motors don't work like that. You feed them voltage or you don't. So they can react exponentially faster than an internal combustion engine would. And that gives engineers much more control over the traction control systems and how they react. In this case, we also have to remember that, and just as you pointed out earlier, electric motors can make torque much faster. So they can also break traction a lot faster. And in my opinion, it feels different. When you break traction on an EV, it tends to spin up a lot more aggressively because it doesn't really have to build to that, that PowerPoint and RPM. It just sort of goes there. Um, whereas an ice bike, there is some latency built in. Um, and on that, on that note, and why I said things get interesting, is because you can feel the traction control react incredibly quickly. In that sense, some riders, more experienced riders, will read that as the TC being heavy-handed. Um, okay. You know, on the road, if you come out of a corner and you really goose the throttle, not to say that you're doing it to intentionally break traction, but you can feel TC stepping in and reeling you back a little bit. As you stand up the bike, get more upright, it then gives you the full force of that, that 166 foot-pounds of torque. But it's definitely there. Off-road, it's sort of the same situation where you can slide the bike and do a progressive power slide. But if you really ham-fist any of the controls, it's cutting in almost immediately. So you have to work up to it. And you can do a full-blown slide as long as you're progressive with the throttle and initiate a, what I'll say is a, a much more progressive slide. You're not just spinning up the rear willy-nilly. Because if you do that, it's cutting power, mainly because oh. it's probably going to become uncontrollable. Well, yeah, without a doubt. Um, and, you know, it, is there some work to be done in that, that category uh, of the bike? Uh, maybe. But we also have to remember that electric motors and internal combustion engines do behave a little bit differently. So as I was riding around and on the street and I kept it in off-road TC, I actually was trying to spin up the rear and having, you know, starting to break traction and having those experiences, I would say for most people, um, that sort of, we'll say more conservative safety net is probably a good thing. So kind of just leave it at that, but, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know, there, there's still, you know, a handful of other benefits that, the DSRX provides over, over an a, a conventional ADV bike. And that really comes down to the gearbox. You know, we got to remember that it doesn't have a gearbox. There's no clutch to fiddle with. 
when you're riding in tech, technical spots off-road, it's a direct drive system. Right. So as you're coming into corners, you know, you don't have to make sure you're on the right gear. If you stop or you're in a technical rocky area, you don't have to sit there and feather the clutch over things. You just manage the throttle and it kind of just turns everything into a giant scooter, which is awesome. It absolutely flattens the learning curve for people that may have been intimidated by the idea of shifting, which as someone that's ridden motorcycles for a while, I kind of forgot about, but <laughs> that is a hurdle for, for many potential riders out there. Sure. You know, and all of that power goes down through a, you know, bigger uh, carbon fiber belt drive developed by Gates. They went from a 20 millimeter belt drive that's seen commonly on their street bikes to a 25 millimeter uh, belt drive. So they say it's 2.6 times stronger. Sure. And although belt drives may seem a little ill-fitting for an off-road application because belt drives have a huge advantage in the sense that they, they don't require as much maintenance as a, a chain drive system. You don't have to oil it, obviously. You just have to check tension every now and again. Right. But when you get dirt and grime and rocks and things like that into a belt drive system, it stretches the belt and it can do some pretty serious damage. However, Zero has done extensive you know, durability testing. And they also went as far to introduce uh, what we'll call a vented sprocket so eventually essentially between the teeth of the sprocket on that fat gear on the rear you'll see these little holes and that's allowing allowing mud dirt and other debris to um you know get pushed through those holes and shed that debris which does uh reduce the chance that's of a damage. good idea so that's a, a handy little thing yeah obviously you know, if you're really going through some some deep sticky mud, you can cake up anything. So there's still a chance for that. And hardcore ADV audiences will want to spring for the accessory chain and sprocket kit for $385. That's still available for that audience. That said, with this sort of uh, ADV bike, the the belt drive is kind of where it's at because to me. With the lack of a gearbox, that adds, you know, an easy riding nature to the motorcycle. You just kind of twist the grip. You still have to deal with the other motorcycle skills and mechanics, such as, you know, turning. But the lack of maintenance on that end is a huge appeal to me. All right. Well, tell me about the chassis and suspension. then. Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, a while ago, it is using a chassis that's based off of the SRF and SRS bikes. It's still at steel trellis frame. Visually, when you're looking at them, you think, oh, okay, well, that's kind of looks the same. Now, to be clear, they are completely different. You know, as I mentioned before, we do have fully adjustable suspension, you know, something like 7.5 inches of travel at each end. Okay, that's very respectable, you know, and a pretty lengthy wheelbase. So when you get on it, you know, outside of the riding position, um, that, that is much different than most ADV bikes. You get on it and you go, oh, okay, well, this thing has a pretty low seat height, you know, a standard seat height of 32.6 inches. It's not this huge leggy monster. And the reason Zero can do that is because it doesn't have a rear cylinder bank getting in the way. So that, that seat can be, you know, really, really scalloped down and it makes it a much more, you know, uh, 
a, a much more accommodating chassis for shorter riders. That's really not common in the ADV segment. Um, you know, so getting my boots on the ground with my 32 inch inseam, I could do that all day. In fact, it kind of feels on the low end. That said, they have made provisions for ground clearance. So it has a, a pretty respectable amount of ground clearance on par with the many ADV bikes in the segment. They've also moved the engine controller, sorry, motor controller that's usually located on the bottom of the of zero motorcycles and move that to the tail section just for additional ground clearance and so you don't smash it. So that's good. But, you know, um, on the chassis front, you got this steel trellis frame, you got ADV geometry that's pretty par for the course in that regard. And, you know, fully adjustable so show of suspension. You know, when we're talking about just outright stability, I would say that this bike definitely is sure-footed. You're going along, you know, on the street, and it has that traditional ADV touring feel to me. In that sense, I would never describe this bike as the most quick-handling motorcycle on the market. It does feel a little bit, you know, more subdued when you're getting into a turn. So that initial tip-in speed is a lot more calm and predictable than, than, uh, than most. And I'd also, you know, put an asterisk next to my experiences with it because our suspension settings were, in my opinion, unusually soft for, for the, for the bike. Um, so those standard settings, I would just crank them right up. Um, so, you know, pitching the thing into a corner, nice and happy. The only, the only time that that it gets a little bit interesting is when you're transitioning from say neutral throttle, you know, towards the apex of a turn, hammering on the gas and then releasing, sorry, hammering on the ions, not the gas. And, uh, <laughs> okay. And then rolling, rolling off and you're putting the chassis in this sort of neutral phase. And because those softer settings, you can sort of squat the rear then release it and the front is also soft and that can make the front feel a bit vague as you're quickly transitioning into a following corner. So yeah, I would just turn up the suspension settings, but as a chassis, it is quite stable because of that wheelbase that we're working with and, you know, sort of a generous rake and trail. In that case, you know, you go off road, everything's kind of happy, and it doesn't deflect in any weird ways. And, and it's very, it's a very comfortable motorcycle. So when I say ADV touring, it's not a knock. It's, it's where I really think this bike lives. Um, and to that end, it, you know, it also comes with some pretty conservative tires right out of the gate. You can opt for some more, more trail ready tires, but it comes with the Pirelli Scorpion Trail 2 tires. In my opinion, that's a 90-10 tire, so 90% road bias right there. Can handle a little bit of off-road use, um, but your edge grip is going to be pretty, you know, pretty interesting in, in low grip situations. Um, but should should the pavement end, you'll be okay. It's not quite as bad as like running off-road on a on a full-blown street tire. Um, so yeah, you know kind of wrapping things up about the chassis nice and stable a little bit you know i would say more subdued in its handling qualities um and then we can sort of go to the brakes and they've partnered with j1 um 
for for their braking capabilities and you know on that front really the bike isn't going to pull any punches i would say that there's good feel good stopping power the one kind of interesting thing there is that it has a linked braking system so when you're using those on-road abs settings if you start hammering on the front brake it's going to apply some rear and if you think back to your experience when you're riding the original r1 i have a feeling that we'd agree and have the same take when you're really unloading the rear and you're you're just hammering the front coming into a corner it will start applying a little bit of rear brake so it can kind of make the rear end feel like it's skating just a tad and that completely goes away when you go into off-road abs because abs is killed in the rear so that's just a byproduct of really loading the front and having some rear brake being applied in the rear. Now, if we stiffened up that front end, that, that sensation might be mitigated, if not completely removed. Um, that said, it's not sketchy. And you actually, I would, I would argue you slow down faster because of it. Um, but it is a sensation the first time you do it, you're like, oh, I didn't think I was, I was getting that buck, but I guess I am. Um, so it is an interesting sensation because linked brakes are, you know, I, I could even apply this to some of the Harley Davidson touring bikes because they have linked brakes. Um, they do kind of the same thing. Uh, when you really start hammering on the brakes, you get that little, little smidge and you're like, oh, okay, that's kind of cool. It sounds like it's a real, you know, it, it's a, it's a very credible motorcycle and, you know, it rides well, but I guess the sort of million dollar question is, is this a real ADV bike? I mean, in a practical sense, can it really be used as an ADV bike? Yes. You know, the short answer, yes, period, podcast over. Uh, there's a little more to it than that. Um, <laughs> okay. We, we did right. talk about this a little bit. With well, the, it's been great talking to you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, see you later. No, but the uh, we did hit on this with the battery and and you know, claimed mileage versus real world mileage and how that's incredibly subjective. So is it a, a viable ADV platform? Yeah, completely. And I applaud Zero for really being the first to get in the game, make the claims and, and push the market in that direction because someone has to do it first and then we build from there. For sure, yeah, for sure. You know, and zero, you know, good, bad, or worse, whatever you want to characterize it as, however you want to look at it, they're bold enough to take it on the chin, do it before anyone else. And that's, that's a big, you know, I'm going to give, you know, everyone a nice golf clap in that regard. Thing is, as we mentioned, it's all subjective. So yeah, if you live near trail systems, if you have EV charging in your, in your, general infrastructure, you can make this work. You just have to understand that it's not going to be as fast as an internal combustion engine because of range and infrastructure capabilities. We're just not there yet. And battery technology hasn't been able to meet those same standards in terms of mileage. That said, I do think we need to point out and talk about these things in a slightly different way. When we talk about adventure motorcycling, you know, we're not really comparing apples to apples when you compare an EV motorcycle and an internal combustion powered motorcycle. 
it's more apples to imported exotic mango because <laughs> okay. EVs are kind of in their infancy. You know, as old as battery technology is, as old as electric motor technology is, electric motorcycles are an emerging market. And, you know, we don't have a near a century of, of uh, you know, internal combustion motorcycling to support it, yeah. right? Yeah. So when we talk about price, when we talk about uh, range, we all, we need to understand that we are talking about a slightly different animal and it is only natural to compare the Zero D DSR X to any random conventional ADV bike because that's our kind of our point of reference. But we do need to understand that these are separate things. So that's kind of my point there is, Yes, it is ADV capable, but you are having a slightly different conversation with slightly different uh, tools for that conversation and realities for that conversation. And that's something that people really need to understand. And when I talk about price, I mean, we are talking about a motorcycle that is commanding a, what I'll say, a flagship uh, MSRP you know, we're up in that $24,000 range. And that's before we add any of the accessory charging and or battery capacity or, you know, wire spoke wheels, you know, MSRP is $24,495 full stop. That's multi-strata V4 money. Right. That's sure. GS sure. money right there. And, you know, on those bikes, you have a lot more features. You have semi-active suspension, you have Ugh, just the list goes on, you know, but in terms of the electronics, the DSR is up to snuff with them or the DSRX, DSRX is up to snuff with them. It doesn't have semi-active suspension because that would add complexity price. It would also suck up battery life. It would also add weight, which this motorcycle does not need because the one thing that it is directly comparable um, with, you know, the rest of the ADV camp is its weight. It's just as heavy at, you know, 544 pounds. That's full-fledged ADV weight, baby. Mm. <laughs> just love picking that up off yeah. the ground. Yeah. Um, but the huge benefit that it has over its, its porky ADV competitors, because remember, GSs, when they're fully kitted out, they can get deep into the 600s. You know, its center of gravity is like, slammed the, the dsr carries its weight low so while it's just as big boned as the competitors it carries it much better you know we'll just kind of leave it at that and the only time you really feel the weight is when you pick it up off the kickstand or you start riding incredibly slow off road but that said and this does remind me there is a parking mode Okay. And that isn't entirely self-explanatory, but it gives you access to a reverse gear. Again, electric motors don't care which direction they spin. They're electric motors. You just tell it which way to go and, and give it juice. So yeah, this thing has, you know, a pretty considerable curb weight, but it's also got a reverse gear and it also has a parking mode going forward. So it just kind of crawls along. Interesting. Okay. You know, some EV 
mountain bikes have like a, a walk function. It's sort of similar to that. And I always forget about reverse gears on big touring bikes, you know, until I've parked on a hill and I'm like, oh, dude, <laughs> right. this, this isn't going to work. And then I'm like, oh, there's a reverse gear. Thank God. Except riding some older ones. I've definitely done that and been like, well, this sucks. And then you have to uh, do this sketchy duck walk or get some friends to, you know, help you out. But, you know, on that note, you should never park the DSR X on a hill facing downward um, because it doesn't have a gearbox. So there's no, there's no way to stop it. It'll just roll. It doesn't have a parking brake? No. And, and, that was a kind of a curious thing that I never got a truly straight answer on. Um, you know, if we think about like the Honda, is it the NC750X the, or is NC700X? can't remember the nomenclature on that one. That one has a parking brake and it's kind of up near the dash. And I always forget about it and then start going. I'm like, oh, oh yeah, there's a brake, sorry. And, you know, scooters have parking brakes. So a little bit of an oversight there. Feel that it should have had it because it does have a hill hold function when you're riding off road. So, you know, it's like engineers took it in that direction where they got 80% of the way there, but the hill hold function eventually disables after a period of time. Um, so you can't just engage it and then let the bike sit there. Um, so, you know, there is that. Uh, so I guess what I'd like to see is a, a, a parking brake. But, you know, that said, when we really gnaw through all this gristle yeah the 2023 zero dsrx is a viable adv bike if you understand what you're getting into its limitations its advantages and the infrastructure that's behind it as of now can it go as far as a gs 1250 adventure loaded down with its 27,000 pounds of fuel <laughs> no can't i'm sorry right also that i think gsas have like 7.5 gallons of fuel something like that just so you guys know putting 7.5 gallons of fuel on a motorcycle and then storing it relatively high on the bike is not good when riding off-road so the dsr has a big advantage where fuel isn't there sloshing around all up top and getting real sketchy when you ride off-road is yeah anyway it's probably not a fair comparison with sort of the established you know ICE you know uh, top level adventure bikes to compare it with this but as a standalone if it sounds as though this is a credible adventure bike within its range limits yeah you know and and as a motorcycle if we just ignored all the all the other stuff it's a credible ADV tour right out of the box quite refined and again what really stands out to me is how they've progressed with the throttle mapping it's just <laughs> uh, think back to some of the experiences that you and i have had with zero zero throttles where they're a little bit interesting now they're as good as any flagship motorcycle from any any top tier brand and you really kind of look at it what they've done with the electronics the chassis development all that good stuff you go you know, every time it's just these huge steps forward. The only thing that's holding zero live wire and energy back is battery technology. And we are making steps forward in that regard as well. And I think, I think the dam's going to break within the next couple of years. 
Well, that's absolutely terrific. Very interesting. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time on this and uh, I found it fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to the future. All right, cool, thanks. In this second segment, I chat with Al and Bridget from Throw Your Leg Over. They took time out to record this episode from somewhere in the middle of Romania, of all places. Anyway, these interesting Aussies have travelled and painstakingly documented the thousands of miles they've covered riding the best roads and sites through Australia, Tasmania, Europe, Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, among other places. Their guided tour books and videos are all available online as a tremendous resource for all of you would-be travellers. A membership to throw your leg over also helps fund their future travels, and who knows where those might lead them. Al and Bridget are truly committed to their passion for travel, and that really comes across. Their fun and zeal for life on two wheels is great to hear. We hope you enjoy this episode. You guys are living the life. <laughs> I, I guess, Alan, where, whereabouts are you now? Um, so we are currently in uh, Romania in a small place about 10 kilometres out of Sibiu, um, which is sort of central Transylvania area. So you've got Transfagorasen quite close and Transalpina, two great Romanian um, roads. So we're at a, uh, actually in a, um, a moto camp um, that's been running for probably three, bit over three years, four years. Um, and we stayed here in 2019 and the owner has become a friend. So we've been parked up here for seven days now because the weather's been pretty ordinary. And we've not been able to do Transfagorasen or Alpina because it's been snowing on both of those for five days all right Br bridget what made you pick transylvania <laughs> i mean did, did you have you have you brought your garlic and your wooden steak with you just... <laughs> <laughs> oh, funny you should mention that we do have some garlic <laughs> <laughs> okay <laughs> um, oh look when we were here in 2019, we really didn't know what to expect in Romania, but it is just beautiful. Um, the mountains are amazing. The mountain roads are amazing. The forests are so thick and green and beautiful. Um, but we have not come across any uh, vampires as yet. Although the other day we did see two bears by the side of the road. So I was extremely excited about that <laughs> so but no 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 vampires so far so all good we um we actually tried doing transfagoras and we got here last saturday afternoon from um serbia and then uh we tried transfagoras and on sunday and we got about i don't know maybe about halfway up on the northern side and Bridget saw her two bears, or we both saw the two bears, which we didn't actually see in 2019 when we did Transfagorasen. Um, but yeah, the uh, temperatures were plummeting. It was like the further we got up, it was getting down towards freezing point. I think we hit two and a half degrees Celsius. And then the fog had enclosed so much, it was like 10 metre visibility. So 
there wasn't much point in continuing on. So we got to a point and turned around and came back down and then had some hot corn on the cob from one of the little roadside stalls, which was pretty bloody good. Yeah, I bet. So for, forgive me, I've never heard of Transfar Grass. And what, what is that? Is, oh. is it a road or a... It's a mountain road. Yes, it's a mountain road. Um, Top Gear kind of brought it, sort of publicised it when they did an episode there. Um, and since then, it's been quite popular. But it's it's a mountain pass, mountain road. Um, Alan probably knows a bit more about the history. Yeah, so, so Transfar Grass and um, Top Gear, you know, with Jeremy Clarkson and stuff, they did that show where they were in like Ferraris, whatever it was, and they called it the best road in the world. I'm not sure I'd call it quite the best road in the world. It's it's very, not for a motorcyclist anyway, um, it's, uh, I think it's the second or third highest pass in Romania. Transalpina is the, the highest paved road in, in Romania, and that is awesome on a motorbike. It's got a combination of nice sweeping curves and also um, twisties as well. Whereas the views on Transfagoras and are like sublime. Um, but yeah, when we did it in 2019, I think half of Romania was trying to get up it on both sides because there was like 10 kilometres of traffic on either side. And we were sort of coming up the middle, but it still took a number of hours to go over it. So it wasn't really enjoyable. Um, this time we were coming back to do it because it's now sort of out of the real peak tourist season. But the thing was, like, as we we're going each past each car in 2019, they all had Romanian number plates. So it's <laughs> like, you know, half of Romania was trying to get up there. It was crazy, Arthur. It was, <laughs> it was the craziest traffic jam you have ever seen. Um, they were literally going nowhere, 10 kilometres of cars on either side of the mountain going nowhere, everyone trying to get to the top. Um, but no one was losing their cool. People were just out of their cars and having picnics by the side of the road. It was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was crazy, but fascinating in a weird way. Yeah. Well, what sort of altitude are you getting up? It sounds like it gets up pretty high. Two, two odd thousand meters. So I don't know what's that in feet. So six and a half, seven thousand feet. Okay. All right. So that's kind of getting up there. I said, what was? What do you reckon's been our highest mountain pass this time around? Uh, that would be colder, is around that's two thousand seven hundred and eighty meters. Okay, that's about that's getting on for nine thousand feet, I would think. Yes, that's that's definitely getting up there. So no wonder you're starting to see snow. I mean, you know that kind of altitude, and it, and and is the bike running okay at, the, at those kind of altitudes? Yeah, no, don't seem to have any issues. So. Our bike is a um, 2008 BMW 1200GS. So um, we've, uh, oh, I've had that for, um, what are we now, 2022, 20, so 11 years. Um, and then, uh, so when I bought that was like, I think it had 8,000 kilometres on it. So it was basically brand new when I bought it. And I got it for a really good deal from someone that was uh, needing some cash. <laughs> so she's been our uh, our uh, third third wheel or <laughs> joined at hip with us for basically ten years and yeah, one hundred and thirty five thousand kilometers we've covered now. Have you done anything special to it? I mean, I presume you've done 
you've done some tweaks to it, maybe something to the seat or the suspension or anything? So, yeah, I mean, we've set the bike up for long distance touring, um, how we want to do it. So, you know, it's got bits and pieces that I've added over the years just to make it um, easier this time. Oh, nice. Uh, so, so we basically have two panniers um, on either side. So mine's 35 litres, Bridget's is 40 litre. We have our big Touratech um, black bag across the back that has our camping and cooking gear in it. And then in 2019, we didn't have bags on the crash bars. So we now have like little six litre um, bags on the crash bar that we put our wet weather gear and our jacket liners in. So it was really quickly accessible when it takes the necessity of having them in your panniers out of that. So um, I reckon that's probably the biggest improvement we made from our trip in 2019 here in Europe to this one. I think having those two bags on the crash bars for the wet gear and the jacket liners has made a big difference to our packing um, because, yeah, as Alan said, we don't need to put, try and stuff that into our panniers because it's quite bulky and you kind of don't use it a lot. But when you do need it, you need quick access to it. Yes. Correct. Which yeah. has happened quite a bit in the last <laughs> probably two weeks. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because, you know, we've only got one penny each for six months of travel. So we have to pack for every season. Um, and it's not a lot of room. So we don't have the luxury of two bikes and two sets of panniers. Um, so we've got to be very careful with our packing. Um, so that's been something that we've refined over the years, I think. Um, and we've got it pretty good now, I think. Um, we've got a we've got a packing list on our website. If uh, if you're listening and you want to know what we pack, it looks really long. Like there's a lot of stuff, but uh, but yeah, we managed to pack it all on one bike. So yeah, yeah and, and like with the packing list that we've got, um, you know, people can download that from our website and it's interactive, so you can check off what you want. Um, and yeah, it, it's quite handy. We have a lot of people that actually download that. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great idea. Great idea. So I guess winding back to the beginning. So when did you actually start this journey and, and where from and where do you think you're going to end up? You know, <laughs> when, when you're going to finish it, it sounds like it's months long. So we started this time, um, 19th of June, we flew out of Australia. We'd shipped our bike from Melbourne to London and it actually arrived about a week before we flew in. Um, and then we had three or four days in London and then we went off to the Adventure Bike Rider Festival at Ragley Hall near Birmingham, um, which for us was probably the biggest, what is the biggest um, uh, bike festival we've actually gone to. So there was like 10,000 odd people come through the gates Wow, over the wow. three days really great so if you're swinging by the uk in june next year uh do yourself a favor and come along <laughs> we'll see you there so so that was our first time at the abr festival um we had uh some of our books on display and had an author's table there and stuff so but i was camping you know out in the grounds and met so many amazing people it was just incredibly yeah incredibly run and, and great people 
so then um, after that, we sort of made our way into or across the channel, um, straight through France to Belgium. And then um, we've sort of come uh, Belgium, uh, France, briefly into Italy, then into Switzerland, then back into Italy. In the Alps. All around the Alp regions for a number of weeks, doing all the great passes that, you know, are must-dos. And some of the ones that people don't know a lot about, especially some of the, the um, unknown or, or lesser-known balcony roads in France, they are just scary as anything, but amazing as well. <laughs> Okay. Um, Honestly, I don't know how they built some of those roads. They just, or why? Like, I don't know. The French in particular seem to love to just build things on the side of mountains. Um, it's, yeah, some of those roads were just hectic. Are they typically paved or, or are they unpaved? No, they're, they're, well, the D219, which is up on our YouTube channel, um, is is like, uh, so it's paved, but it's it's like a single track, but it's two ways. So if you meet a vehicle coming the other way, um, it's a bit hairy. But they're paved. So the the D two one nine was paved up to a village, like up in the mountain, and then beyond that, which we went, it was either turn around and come back down, or continue on and see what it was like. So we continued on and it became a gravel track that initially went through some nice meadows with beautiful mountain views on either side and stuff, and then sort of wound its way around the mountain with sheer drop-offs, which was a bit terrifying, but... <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, that's going to wake you up a bit, isn't it? If, if you watch the video on our YouTube channel, you can hear me giggling hysterically from terror. That's <laughs> <So. laughs> yeah. nervous laughter coming from the back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, so... Some, I think some of the lesser known ones, the road conditions are pretty, you know, can be ordinary on them. They're quite patched and potholed and stuff. Um, but that's typical of roads, you know, like back roads um, that you do pretty much anywhere. And I think in any country, like, you know, it's part of part and parcel of the awesome experience. experience. Yeah. So, so yeah, so then um, after we left Italy, we came into Slovenia. Um, had a week and week and a half there, then into Croatia, um, uh, Bosnia, and then Serbia, and now in Romania. So I've heard a lot of really good things about Croatia. Oh, it's oh, beautiful. Yeah. Uh, Must be absolutely stunning. Yeah. yeah. Had some friends who travelled there and said it was unbelievable. Yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. The coastline is just stunning. The Adriatic Sea is bluer than blue. <laughs> Croatia has. Uh, over a thousand islands so when you're going along the coastline there's just all these islands everywhere and there's boats you know from big yachts to tiny little fishing boats and then so you've got the sea on one side and then on the other <laughs> side you've got the mountain range so it's it really is quite spectacular and the people are friendly and lovely and the food's amazing and yeah the history is amazing it's yeah. a great place yeah so we've done um like in 2019, we uh, we did six months in Europe and we spent, you know, a week or probably a couple of weeks in Croatia back then. And, and yeah, you just, it's just a got to come back to place because it's just so spectacular. And right. when you're running along that, you know, Adriatic coast and it goes for like, I don't know, a 
thousand kilometers or whatever it is from top to bottom. Oh my God, it's just <laughs> amazing. It's gorgeous. Yeah. So at the moment we're in Romania and next stop for us will be sort of heading south. Um, so we're going to go through Bulgaria and then into Turkey. Um, Turkey's new for us. We have not been there before uh, and we'll probably have enough time to spend a good three or four weeks there. Although from what everyone's told us, we'll barely scratch the surface because Turkey's just got so many amazing right. roads and things to see and history. Um, but yeah, Turkey's then, and then we're sort of heading west again. So probably through the top of Greece and then <laughs> jump on a couple of ferries across to Italy and then Spain and then across to Portugal. Um, and we're going to leave our bike with friends in Portugal. Um, and then fly home at the end of November because um, our plan is to go home for a, a couple of months. It's Christmas, see everybody. We're still alive, we're here. <laughs> um, and then um, the plan is that we'll jump on a plane and come back next year and stay a bit longer if we can, if it all, if it all goes according to plan. Terrific. Do you do a lot of research when you're coming into a country? Do you just sort of follow the road and go oh let's head here or 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 is there something specific landmark that you want to see and you're like well we've got to visit that place I mean I might have a look at you know things that I want to see or and we also have people that we've kind of connected with over the years um, so quite often when we go into a country we'll go to visit that person um, to catch up with them and then Alan will find sort of a great route <laughs> to get to to where we're going yeah, so, so I guess, you know, for us with the travel is, one, the amazing roads to do on a motorcycle. For sure. So that's quite high up muscle and our, just our general life, I guess. And then there's also the history of places which we do, you know, put some effort into research as well. Uh, so, but when it comes to putting a route together, um, there's a lot of uh, things out there, you know, that have routes on them that you can have a look at. So I sort of a bit of a combination um, of putting routes together based on, you know, some that have been in bike magazines and stuff like that. But then other times I actually just look at an area on, say, Google Maps and then I'll zoom down into that area and I'll see a squiggly line. <laughs> and sometimes you can go down and get a street view of it to see whether it's paved or whether it's gravel. Other times, particularly more in the eastern side of Europe, there's no street view. So it's potluck, whether it's gravel or whether it's tarred. Um, and yeah, just put a route together. I use my route app to put all my routes together. And then I save them as either a GPX or an ITN file, and then I upload them into our TomTom, which we name Timmy. Timmy the TomTom, yes. And, and yeah, so then we sort of go like from one point to another point, and you sort of connect that point then to another point. So, you know, by the end of this trip, we'll have hundreds of points connecting each other. That's taken us around pretty much Western Europe, Eastern Europe. Yeah. Right. But, you know, sometimes it's the best roads we've, well, not found, but ridden are 
the local the locals telling us you got to check out this yeah. road right and and so we do always and uh, oh my gosh it's, it's usually some little out of the way road that's just stunning or there's something stunning when we get to the end um so local knowledge is uh, is awesome yeah yeah and then sometimes there's um well, depending on how many waypoints you put into your route uh, and then feed them into your GPS. So um, we have a bit of a love-hate relationship sometimes with Timmy, our TomTom, because he seems to know uh, a better route than what you've put together. <laughs> and will take you off on some interesting little sidetracks. His shortcuts are legendary. <laughs> so, so, yes, we've... Uh, We've been on some uh, absolute crackers on that. Some of them we've had to turn back because the road just peters out, even though he thinks it's a shortcut. But but some of the others are just turned out, you know, if you didn't actually do it, you'd miss out on quite a dramatic landscape because it's just spectacular. So I can imagine. How are you doing for things like fuel and, you know, and that kind of stuff? Do you you know you're off on some off eaten track and you're like oh wait a minute perhaps we should have filled up you know half an hour ago <laughs> <laughs> um yeah sort of like that lesson i think in 2019 when we were in morocco we were and, and funnily enough it was coming up from marrakesh to uh, rabat and it was on the motorway um and that was the first time we'd been on the motorway in 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 Morocco, because all the rest of our Moroccan trip was on B or C class roads. So we're coming up the motorway, and I think I had, um, you know, I'd filled up Marrakesh, uh, oh, I can't remember now, but <clears throat> it was like, well, you know, I've got a range of whatever it was, 80 kilometres, 100 kilometres. And then, um, so, and then it was showing that there was, you know, a few service station points along the way so i missed the first two <laughs> and then it sort of got a bit critical and the third one was completely closed oh. and and looked like it hadn't been in operation for years even though it was showing up as a fuel stop right so by the time i got to the fourth one we were down to breathing on fumes right and but it was also closed so um this, this fourth one that looked like it was closed because it was being rebuilt, we sort of went in there and it was like, well, hell, we're going to run out of fuel. And there was um, behind it an overhead tank that they were pumping out of, but still took cash and everything for fuel. So I think we had, I don't know, one litre left or something. So sort of learned a lesson from that is don't wait until you're sort of, you know, running on empty, uh, fill up every, you know, even if you're half full yeah. and you're not sure what's going to happen ahead, then fill up. Sure. We fill up every day, don't we? Uh, pretty much every yeah. day. Yeah. I, I would imagine. Yeah, it's quite easy to get fuel pretty much anywhere, like every country we've been to, right. and more so probably in Eastern Europe is they're even closer together in smaller towns. So, yeah, not too bad. Right. How about language? I mean, presumably you you use Google Translate a fair bit. Or... I actually, this time around, um, learned some French before we came. I actually did a course. I thought, right, I'm going to learn some French. <laughs> yeah, très bon. So I did that. And, um, 
And it was great, I've got to say, um, because I could converse a little bit. Also, I, I found as we were in France for a few weeks and I could see words and sort of work out what they meant. And it was brilliant. Um, and the local people, obviously, everywhere you go, they appreciate it when you attempt to speak their language, even if your attempts are really bad. Um, so, you know, going into somewhere and saying bonjour with a smile will get you... Uh, yeah, we found the French people, honestly, they have a bit of a reputation for being rude and arrogant, but they were lovely. I don't think we came across a single person that wasn't absolutely lovely. Yeah, we've always found the same thing. And like you say, if you make the effort to speak their language, even if it's kind of a token effort, they appreciate it. Yes. And I think that is, like, if, if, if I could give any word of advice or whatever else, would be that at least if you're going to a country, at least learn how to say hello thank you um yeah because it makes a yeah. world of difference yeah. it really does it does so just going back to morocco in 2019 you know we made an effort to salam means hello and i can't remember that uh, so, so you get a, a response and then you go back with another response which is three or four words and i can't remember it now because it's back in 2019 but the difference it made was just amazing because mm -hmm. you went from being a tourist to like I was having people asking me, oh, or saying me, oh, you speak Arabic. And I'm going, <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I do not. Welcoming you were made to feel yeah. was just amazing. And, and it really, I think it, it, it just takes you from being a tourist to being like you're making an effort and people will oh. give you the shirt off their back because you're making an effort. It's yeah, just. They appreciate it so much. Like even here in Romania, when we went out to um, uh, just got dinner in a little local restaurant and I couldn't remember how to, the pronunciations in the Romanian language um we're still learning. Um, but I just asked him, I had on Google Translate, you know, thank you, which I, know I couldn't figure out how to pronounce it. So I actually asked the guy in the restaurant and just pointed and said, you know, how do you say, how do you say? And so he told me and he just got this big smile on his face. Like he was just so happy that we were trying to learn how to say thank you. And it just completely changed our whole experience of dinner. It was great. It was so good. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's awesome. It definitely sounds as though you do quite a lot of camping. Yeah. So so where we are now is a house. Um, so it, it's like we've got a run of the whole house. <laughs> uh, Motor Camp CBU is awesome. I would highly recommend that to anyone that's coming in this area to stay at because... Yeah. Not only is it a house with some rooms, you've got cooking facilities, you know, you've got everything here. There's a couple of cabins And then he's the also, yeah, two cabins out the back. And, like, you know, you can pick an apple off the tree and they're bloody awesome and there's grapes hanging and stuff And at this time of the year, so it's really good. Um, going back to camping, we do a mix of camping and uh, staying in Airbnbs mainly. Okay. In yeah. Western Europe. We, we did quite a bit of camping because it's it just saves you money. For sure. Whereas in Eastern Europe, it's so cheap to get an Airbnb where you get a whole apartment for, you know, 25, 30 euros a night. Yeah. Right. We've, to be honest, Arthur, we've stayed in very few hotels, like in most of our travels, actually. 
one, because they tend to be more expensive, but also because we kind of find it harder to meet local people when we stay in a hotel. I bet, yeah. Like it's a bit more formal and, you know, you check in at reception and they hand you your key and off you go. Whereas um, staying in like a motor camp or a campground, inevitably there's another motorbike rider there and you'll give them a wave and have a chat and find out they're from Germany or, you know, Poland or wherever um, and have a bit of a chat if you if you can. Um, motor camps are awesome. There's a few motor camps around in Europe. I don't know if that's a thing in the US. It's not really a thing in Australia. Actually, I've never heard of it. So so what are motor camps? Oh, it's just a accommodation for motorcyclists, really. <laughs> How do you find them? Are they on sort of websites? Is there a, an app? I think you could just Google them. Facebook, you know, other riders will tell you, you know, recommend. I mean, the two we've stayed in are this one, Motocamp Sibiu in Romania and Motocamp Bulgaria, which again is just in a little village. Um, but it's it's just, you know, they've uh, they've Motocamp Bulgaria have been going for a, a few years longer. They've got tools that you can use if you want to fix up your bike. You can do your tires there. So they're sort of it's just. <laughs> aimed at motorcyclists but really it's just accommodation yeah and, and i think with um like motocamp bulgaria yeah like bridget said in a in a small tiny little village but if you want anything like you can arrange with them before you get there wow like if you needed new tires so and they'll have them waiting for you so it's um and they got really good facilities there and just the amazing people again, you know. So, and I think with the Airbnbs as well. So, uh, Airbnbs, if you look for a whole apartment somewhere, um, usually the host will make contact with you and you'll meet up with the host and everything. And, and 99% of the time, they are very friendly and accommodating. The one we had in Visegrad in, in Bosnia before we crossed into Serbia. So we stayed there for two or three nights and we had this whole um, apartment to ourselves and, and the uh, host mum lived in the house next door and and like she'd be sitting there and it was a beautiful place to stay at and the doorbell would go and you'd open the doorbell and they'd be standing there with all this fruit and veg they'd just picked from their garden for you to use and stuff and, and, and then like you'd open the door again and he'd be standing there with a shot of rakia, which is the the homemade plum from plums or apricots and kind stuff. Like, it's kind of like schnapps. Moonshine. Moonshine. <laughs> so a, a liquor, not just a wine or a yeah. hardcore. No, no. Oh, it, no. Uh, <laughs> it puts hairs on your chest, this stuff, I tell you. <laughs> and then, um, but yeah, and then like the local Bosnian dish, uh, shavapi, if I'm saying that right, is like a a sausage without the skin on it, um, uh, meat, and, oh, God, it tastes so good. And, you know, I opened the door and here he'd, he'd cooked up, you know, uh, shavapi with onion and it was in like a, um, almost like a Turkish bread type type wrap. Oh, my God, it's just bloody amazing. And But that's the hospitality you get, yeah. you know, particularly I find more so in Eastern Europe like People just go out of their way to to 
to make you so welcome. Yeah. And you just, you know, you're not going to get that in a hotel. So. You are not. No, that's correct. We rarely stay in hotels. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's true. So going back to the beginning, throw your leg over is clearly you've been doing this for, for quite some time. I mean, I looked at your website and you've got books and resources and, and things. When did you start on this journey and what started you on it? Uh, so it started back in uh, 2016, sorry. Um, Alan and I um, had been together for a few years, We'd done lots of writing, loved it out on the weekends. Um, and we, a friend just happened to say, you guys should write a book. So we had a, a good think about that for about two seconds and went, okay, we'll do that. Um, so, yeah, within a day we had decided on a concept for the book which would we decided we'd basically do a guidebook of like just all our favorite rides that we love to do around Brisbane where we were living at the time um we just put them all in a book so that we could share it with people um and then we also came up with the name of three leg over so we wanted something a little bit cheeky um so yeah so three leg over was born um, and it so, took us about 15 months to put that first book together because we had no idea what we were doing. We really didn't. <laughs> and we did everything ourselves. Like it's all, um, you know, for the, each ride, you know, there's maps, there's pictures, there's descriptions, there's directions, there's QR codes so that you can scan the QR code and bring up that particular route on your phone, a um, whole bunch of stuff. And... Um, I did the book design as well. I had to learn how to do that. The only thing that we needed help with, obviously, was the printing of the book. So we had a local printer do that for us, and he was amazing. Um, but, yeah, and, and it was a big gamble because we didn't know if we'd send, sell a single book, you know. So, But we thought, you know what, we're going to give it a crack. So we did, and we did sell some books. <laughs> so. Awesome. And it went really well. And so we thought we'll do Sorry, another one. I so I think with the first book, um, the concept of the first book, there was nothing like it that we'd found in Australia. So, so there's a lot of books out there where people have done some amazing things and they write their own story about what they've done. Ours is totally different. It, it's a guidebook. So when we were looking around as, well, is there anything out here like this? In Australia, I think there was maybe one or two that one was a road atlas of 200 rides in Australia, I think it was, but it was quite old at that stage. Um, so, so the concept was, you know, the, to give people something that they can grab and if they want to go... So our, our first book was broken up into 21 rides. So we had, like, quick blats, which is three or four hours, day rides... You know, you go out for the day and a bit further distance out and then weekends away. Um, so the concept was, wasn't was really out there. We sort of call it a lonely planet for motorcyclists um, that you can pick it up and you go, where do I want to go to today? And they can look at a ride and go, okay, let's do this one. And away they go, oh, I'm going away for a weekend. You know, where's a good place to go for a weekend? Oh, and the other thing I forgot to mention is like when people buy the, the book, they can get the GPX files or ITM files for free for all the rides. 
So they can just go, okay, I want to go to Queen Mary Falls on Saturday. Um, and they've got the GPX files, so just stick it straight into their um, Garmin or their TomTom or whatever, and away they go. That's terrific. So presumably at that point, you still had real jobs and you were you were sort of bank tellers or something and thinking <laughs> maybe just maybe there's a chance that we might be able to make a living doing this and just do it permanently. We were in the cubicles. Yes. So, uh, yes, you're quite right. We both had full time jobs working in completely unrelated jobs. Um, and we just did this in the evenings and on the weekends um, while we were working. And as fulfilling as those jobs were, no, yada yada. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, <laughs> oh, maybe we can make a living. Maybe we can just make just enough money to just keep going. Yeah, well, that's that's the idea. That you're exactly right, Arthur. Like that was our that was where we wanted to get to. It's like, can we get this up and going and get it the momentum so that it can fund our adventures? Um, or that at, was, least, at least. Yeah partially from the adventures to start with yeah which it has um yeah so yeah so that's it so the first book came out it went really well and then we did another book we wrote down to Tasmania it's a little island down the bottom of Australia beautiful place um Mot motorcycling mecca oh magic um and so we wrote we did a book on that um which was awesome so the book on Tasmania has a bit of a different um, format than our southeast Queensland, northern New South Wales one. Right. So Tasmania, you know, if people are going to Tassie, they want to take 10 days, two weeks or whatever. Right. And so the book is structured for a lap of Tasmania in either a clockwise or anti-clockwise direction. Oh, perfect. Um, 16 rides in that one. So you can, and they interlink. Um, so you can... If you've only got 10 days and you can only do, say, eight of the rides, right. then you can pick and choose which ones you want to do. Right. That's absolutely awesome. Have you ever been tempted to, to go a little closer to home and try New Zealand? I've heard unbelievable things about New Zealand. Oh. Yeah. Back in my former life when I was in the Navy and everything, went to New Zealand a few times and, yeah, just amazing. Um, we haven't right. ridden there I've got, to, I've got to confess, Arthur, I have never been to New Zealand. Okay. All right. Neither have I. Um, but it has been on my bucket list for a very long time, and I'm determined to get there, and I would love to do it on a motorcycle. Yeah. Well, I think we'll have to do another podcast when you do New Zealand. Yes. Okay. Deal. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's absolutely terrific. So do you have anything sort of mapped out for the future where you, you are, or are you just taking it as it comes? I think just going back backwards for a minute, like in 2019, we did our first trip to Europe. So that was at that point in time, our once in a lifetime trip to Europe. We were gone for six months, we, or nearly six months, we covered 26 countries from Morocco to Norway, um, from the west coast of Portugal to the Black Sea. Um, Romania, Bulgaria. So yeah, 26 countries on that trip, 27,000 kilometres. Um, and then when we got back from that, we put a Europe publication together, which is a downloadable um, PDF digital book. So that one was over a thousand pages. It took us quite some time to put that together. It has uh, like 
the, the first hundred odd pages is all about prepping for your tour. You know, do you hire a bike? Do you ship your bike? Do you buy a bike if you can? Um, everything to do with prepping for coming to Europe. And then... So things like insurance, how much money do you need? What do you need to pack again? Um, Schengen, most people, when we say Schengen, they go, where? Um, which is exactly what we said when someone mentioned to us originally. So Schengen is, there's a Schengen area in Europe, which is made up of, I think, 26 countries. 27 countries. And within that area, there are no border crossings. So you just keep riding from one country to another. Um, there's no border crossings, um, but they, which is great. Um, but for tourists like you and I, um, we're only allowed to stay within that Schengen area for um, 90, days. 90 days in every 180 days. So within a six-month period or so, you've got to get out of that Schengen area for about three months and go somewhere else like Eastern Europe or Morocco or the UK. Um, so, yeah, so things like that are in the front of the Europe book. And then we cover, we added a few countries. We've got 46 countries in there. Wow. So we cover just some details of sort of what you need for each country, like visas and money and all that kind of stuff. And then there's 62 of our rides that we did ourselves in 2019. Because um, that's where it should mention that as well. All the rides in all our books and our membership and everything are rides that we have done. Like if we haven't done it, it doesn't go in. So, um, yeah, so the Europe book's got 62 rides that we did in 2019. Um, the rides that we're doing at the moment um, are... We, we laugh a bit, Arthur. We say that we're working very hard researching <laughs> new rides for um, the, the people in our membership. Because <laughs> so, uh, we give, in, if you're in our membership, we give you a new ride in Australia and a new ride in Europe every month and a bunch of other stuff. Um, so, yes, we're working very hard researching rides for, for the membership. <laughs> so. Yeah, so, and just going on that, so 2019, you know, trip of a lifetime, we went hard, mm -hmm. um, covered a lot of territory, and then we got back from that one, um, Bridget went straight back to work like two days later, I took about eight weeks before I looked for a job and stuff and went through mass depression and, and stuff, um, and then, uh, but then we sort of had a bit of a, like at that stage, it was the trip in a lifetime. I'd been uh, planning for it. It was meant to be for my 50th birthday. I was going to go and follow the Tour de France routes. Not so much because I am a cyclist or I like cycling or whatever, but, this, you know, you watch the Tour de France and you see that scenery and everything and you go, God, that's amazing. I want to go follow that. So it was a plan to do that for my 50th. It didn't happen until four years after that, um, 2019. So... And at that stage, it was going to be our trip of a lifetime once and once you do it once type thing. Um, when we got back from that, we sort of went through, well, you know, why can't we do it again? I'm sure. And sort of made some choices in life that, you know, we wanted to, one, get tied or throw your leg over to a point that it can fund us. Um, but also, why can't we travel? We're, we've got good health. We, we don't have any commitments or anything. Um, we, uh, you know, all our, our kids and everything are well and truly grown and stuff. Right. So you, you don't have a bunch of little kids waiting at home going, where the heck are we in bed? Okay, all right. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. 
No. I mean, really, we're kind of in that sweet spot in our lives where, you know, the kids are all grown up and independent. We've got our health. We've got a bit of money in our pocket. So now's the time, you know, to, to do the things that we really want to do. So, um, and, you know, we've, we've had friends who are our age who've come down with serious illnesses. Um, and, you know, so that's always a reminder that life is short and, you know, you need to do it while you can. So, so that's what we're doing. Yeah. hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. It's the question really isn't why it's why not. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. And we appreciate, you know, that what we do is not for everyone. Not everyone can live off a motorbike for six months at a time. Or wants you know, to. <laughs> or wants to or anything. But, you know, okay. it, it, I think it's our happiest place is actually being on the bike and, and touring and, and these new experiences and everything. So, and and plus for us, because it is a business and we have, we have a couple other uh, things that we have running as well, so tax-wise, it's quite good for us as well because the trips are all tax deductible as long as we're making some money. <laughs> yeah, 100%. You sound like you do the riding on the back, Bridget. Have you ever been tempted to sort of learn to ride yourself and maybe take over half of the riding duties or, or are you happy to just enjoy, enjoy the ride from the rear? I, I love being pillion. I don't know if that's what you call it in the US, but that's what we call it in Australia. When you're on the back, you're pillion. So I love that because I take photos. Oh God, you should see me, Arthur. I've got a camera in my right hand, a GoPro in my left hand. And the whole time we're riding, I'm taking photos and videos. And I love that, um, you know, getting home at the end of the day and looking at the photos and the videos. And I do the video editing on most of it. Um, for our members in the membership, I'll do the video editing of the rides that we share with them. Um, and I love doing all that. Um, but I actually did get to a point where I thought, you know what, I, I love being pillion, but I just want to know how to ride a bike. Right. So I did go and get my license uh, a couple of years ago and I did, um, I got a little bike, which I loved. And yeah, it was great fun. And I love, you know, having my hands on the handlebars, but I did have to sell that bike um, because I didn't have anywhere to keep him. Um, so now I'm just pillying again, but every now and then I do get the itch to, to ride my own bike again. Um, so maybe when we get home, I might get one. There's also a little bit of a safety aspect to it as well, because if something, God forbid, happens to Alan, if he, you know, eats something weird and suddenly he's taken ill on the road, you can say, you know what, I'll take over and you can sort of, you know, you can strap him to the back while you get into the nearest doctor. I would probably have to be near death. <laughs> right. Yeah, I guess I'm a bit of a control freak there, uh, yeah. Arthur. That, uh... I think we all are. Once you ride a bike, you really, it's almost impossible to ride billion. I mean, I'm right with you. I, I am with you. But but I'm talking about like emergency. You know, you fall awkwardly and you snap your ACL or something. And you're yeah. like, oh, my yeah. God, you know. So it, yeah. it, it's nice to know that you've got that little bit of safety margin, I would think, you know, just a little bit. Yeah. OK, you've got your sort of a get out of jail free card if you need it. <laughs> <All right. laughs> well, thankfully, knock on wood, we haven't been in a situation like that uh, 
so fingers crossed good will be will be yeah okay. that's absolutely terrific i guess the last question i have to ask you the most obvious question do you have a favorite place that you've been to or is it all so stunning you're just like let's keep moving so i think on this trip um we've done some roads that we did in 2019 not many but some but i think probably not so much the same roads but the regions definitely so you know this this time we've focused more on the french swiss and italian alps we spent like a good i don't know two months two and a half months in in that area because you can go back time and time again and do different roads every time and like so we're still even though this is our second trip and you know if you look overall be a year that we've spent in europe riding after this one like we feel like we've still just scratching the surface um we've still got so much to do in the pyrenees between spain and, and france and you know we want to go back to morocco um because that is just a stunning 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 country um we want to go to the top of Norway next year to Nordcap. We we did Norway in 2019, but we did the West Coast, so we haven't gone all the way to the top. So yeah, there's for me, there's still so many places in a country we haven't been, or we want to. Some of them you do want to go back and do, like, um, but yeah, and and so the answer is is no, you don't have a favourite for me. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. That's okay. very hard to put a finger on it. Yeah. It's a really tough question, Arthur. Like for me, like 2019, um, someone asked me that question. I said, well, the Alps, Eastern Europe, Morocco, and Norway were my favorite places. And then I thought, well, that was pretty much the whole trip. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's a tough, tough question. Um, but sort of adding on to that, though, is quite often it's the people that you remember, the people you meet and the people that you remember. And we're still in touch with people that we met years ago. And they're the memories that stick as well, not just the places. I noticed that at no point have we mentioned the, the United States yet. Do you have any sort of hankering to come to the US? I mean, believe me, speaking as an American, we have some unbelievable riding here. I mean, Drew. Oh. Yeah, definitely. Um... Your scenery, from what I've seen, is spectacular. I actually was in the States, oh, God, when I was backpacking back in the day. I was, um, I was there for a few months. Um, and, oh, the scenery is amazing. And I'm sure I only scratched the surface as oh, well. Yeah. But Europe's our focus, I think. We've toyed with the idea of South America. I think I um, it's all... Uh, it's well, a big world, Arthur. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it is on the cards. Um, don't know when because yeah. there is just still so much to cover. And I'd love to go to Asia as well. I've never been to Asia apart from flying over it. And I'm like, uh, you know, so where do you start? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you both very much. Do you, is there, is there anything else that you'd like to add to, to this? Um, I think maybe just we'd love it if people sort of jumped on our website and Facebook and Instagram and said hello. That'd be awesome. And if they sort of, sure. um, yeah, that'd be great. Presumably the best way to contact you and to to join your membership, if, if they're so inclined, is 
is at throwyourlegover.com.au. Yes. That's it. And I think, like, you know, you know, we're more than happy to answer any queries people may have and stuff. So if if anyone out there does have queries on whether it's Europe or Australia or Tasmania or, yeah. you know, because Australia is an amazing place to ride as well. And I think a lot of people don't know a lot about riding in Australia. So we have, you know, the the third or fifth longest mountain range in the world that goes from the on our east coast from the top of Queensland down into Victoria. Yeah, well, we've got some awesome riding down, you know, down there where you do have mountains and twisties. We don't have the mountain heights of Europe. Our, our highest mountain pass, I think, is about 1,600 metres. But, you know, there, there is some fantastic riding mm. in Australia. And, and yeah, so we're more than happy to answer any questions mm. or queries or anything that people may have because we have done quite a bit of riding in, also in Australia and, and you know, Tassie, of course, which is just motorcycling mecca in yeah. some. So if you're listening and you're curious about riding in Europe or Australia, hit us up with your questions. Okay. Well, thank you both very much. It's been very entertaining listening to you. It's, it's been great. It's been really nice to meet you and chat with you, Arthur. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Fantastic. Okay. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you. All right. Bye.